This morning's uh, sermon is called The Beauty of Boundaries. And the topic is addressing the fact that at the moment we live in what I would call the age of adolescence. Now what is the defining characteristic or attribute of someone going through their adolescent or teenage years? There are a few perhaps like searching for your identity, but I think if you asked any parent the overwhelming uh, main attribute that a teenager has is one of rebellion. It's this almost innate, innate desire to go against whatever you're being told to do. So for example, uh, every parent will tell their child, don't you know, drink alcohol, don't do drugs, and don't have sex before you're married. And so the teenager, in their infinite wisdom, thinks to themselves... They ponder this, they think to themselves, well, you know, I've heard this same message from my parents, from my pastor, from my Sabbath school leaders, from my church family, from my teachers at school, from my government. I've heard it from about every single person in authority. But I have a feeling that they're probably wrong about this one. (laughs) And so in this infinite wisdom, they decide, I'm going to try it out for myself and see if they're actually right. Despite the fact that for the past 6,000 years, every single person who's ever tried one of those three things has always ended up miserable, sad, and has never worked out for them. And yet there seems to be this attitude that, well, I'm going to be the exception to this rule. It won't happen to me. I'll be the one who is different. The rule doesn't apply to me. And so we have this innate rebellion against boundaries, against rules that are established for the good of those who uh, are too supposed to adhere to them. All of these rules are for the benefit of people. And yet, the adolescent feels that they'd be better off if they tried all of these things. So how do we live in an age of adolescence? Well, our society very much has the exact same point of view. We look at things such as boundaries or divisions or rules and laws... And we decide that there's something to be rebelled against, that they're not really there for our benefit or for our good. They're something that are evil, that they are restrictive in some manner. And so this morning, what I want to do is look at how God creates boundaries and the the beauty that we can find in them. And then look specifically at one area in which our uh, culture is pushing directly against these beautiful boundaries that God has created for us. And I suppose the main thesis of this uh, message is this, that boundaries create four things. Those things are beauty, order, safety, and life. That's beauty, order, safety, and life. And in opposition to that, rebellion creates all of the things that are opposite to that. So instead of beauty, we are left with ugliness. Instead of order, things result in chaos. Where there should be safety and security, we're left with vulnerability. And where once life was, there is now death. And we're going to see this as a recurring pattern as we go through, that whenever God creates boundaries, you see beauty, order, safety, and life, and that rebellion against these boundaries results in ugliness, chaos, vulnerability, and death. So let's open up just to the very first page of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. I find it so fascinating that the beginning of the biblical story is all about God creating boundaries and divisions and how he brings about these four uh, things through the creation story. 
We're just going to be skimming at first through these. So let's have a look to begin with. What is the first thing that God does on the first day of the week? What does he create? He creates light. And it says there was light and there was darkness. So God begins his creation by separating the light from the darkness. Or in other words, he's made a division between two things and he set boundaries for the light and for the darkness. On the second day, we read that God created uh, the, the waters above and the waters below. Uh, and so these are things, uh, these are again, uh, they create, there's a creation of order here. There's definitely beauty in this because we see the skies as well as the oceans that we look at. And of course, we depend on the waters above the rains to give us life. So this is a life-sustaining thing. Then we come to the third day. God begins uh, by separating the waters from the dry land. And then he goes on uh, to create the vegetation. Now here, humans are finally given a place to, to live, right? The land is going to be where the humans eventually inhabit. So this is a place of safety for humans as opposed to living uh, in the ocean. It's a refuge from the raging oceans that we see. And of course, there's, actual, there's a lot of beauty in this division between uh, the waters and the land. You know, the popular thing people like to do is we like to go and walk on beaches. And that's that very natural division between the ocean and between the land. On the fourth day, what does God create? If you have a look, on the fourth day, what does God make? He begins to create... All of those celestial bodies, the stars and the planets. And it says he gives two great lights, one to rule the day, which would be the sun, and the lesser one to rule the night, which is the moon. So here we have God reaffirming this uh, boundary or division between light and darkness, day and night. He now has the sun and the moon. And of course, the sun we also rely on uh, for life. Then we come to the fifth day, where God says he's going to make the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. So you notice on the second day, he made the waters above and the waters below. And now God is filling up those two spaces. He now makes the birds of the air to fill this above area, and he makes the fish of the sea to fill the waters below. Then we have the beasts of the earth and humanity on the sixth day. And this is a very important distinction, distinction that God makes, that the animals are very different from human beings, that humans, unlike the animals, are made in the image of God. And in this, we also get the commission that God gives to humanity. He says, because you are elevated above the animals, because you are different from them and made in my image, you have a unique commission. And so God gives to humanity life, but also purpose, value, identity, Intimacy, all these beautiful things for human beings to enjoy. On the sixth day, we also see God make another distinction between man and woman. He creates two unique individual beings, both made in his image, but both reflecting different aspects of his beautiful nature and character. Another division that we see is the division between humanity as a whole and God. God is other. He is higher than humanity. And though he has this intimate relationship with humanity, he is distinctly above and he is, uh, there's a boundary between them. 
And this is a positive thing because humanity, we rely on God for everything. If you look at Adam and Eve, they rely on God to give them the garden. When they come uh, on the sixth day, God has prepared everything for them already. He spent the last six days making this beautiful creation for them, a safe environment for them. And so humans are dependent upon God for all of the blessings that they receive. Then God gives Adam and Eve a very unique relationship. He gives them uh, this deep personal relationship of marriage. And it's distinctly different from other interpersonal human relationships. You can have friendships, you can be close to your family, but marriage is something that is distinctly different and set apart from all of these other human relationships. And then God completes all of his creative work by resting on the seventh day. And we're told that God blesses the seventh day and makes it holy. And that idea of making holy is to set something apart for holy use. It's distinctly different. And so here, the seventh day is divided from the other six. There's a clear boundary made in which the seventh day is distinctly different from all of the other days of the week. And so we have this incredible story where God creates order where once there was chaos. He creates beauty, he creates safety, and he creates life all through divisions and boundaries. And you'll notice that God calls all of this creation good. He looks at all of these boundaries and divisions and he says these things are good. And when he comes to humanity, he says that man and woman, humanity and God, marriage and other relationships, all of these things encapsulated by humanity as a creation, he says this is very good. Humanity is the the crowning achievement of the creation story. Now there are two other divisions that God makes... And these divisions are for the good of humans, but not everything in the divisions is necessarily good. One tree in the garden was the tree of life. And that is distinctly different from the second tree, which is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, obviously, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not good for humans. But the fact that God makes this distinction between them is for our good, because it's a warning to choose life over death. And that's the final boundary or division that is made. Life and death. These are the two choices that are represented. So while death is not positive, it is not good, it is good that there is a distinction made between life and death so that God can encourage his creation to continually choose a life, to eat from the tree of life rather than from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God creates Adam and Eve the perfect paradise in which there is beauty, order, safety, and life. And so long as they continued to follow the law of God, the Garden of Eden would have stayed that way. And of course, Satan is looking in at this perfect creation, and it is driving him insane. It is driving him nuts seeing these, these creatures created in the very image of God. They reflect the very character of the one person he despises the most. And he sees them enjoying this eternal bliss, and he wants to come in and sabotage it. And so in Genesis 3, we begin to see how, God, uh, how Satan can make humans believe that boundaries are not good, but are in fact evil. Let's read through Genesis chapter 3 together. Genesis chapter 3. 
And we begin in uh, verse 1. It says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Satan's first strategy is he comes to Eve and he begins to sow seeds of doubt into Eve's mind. You'll notice that that's a very loaded question that he asks because it implies that God is restrictive. The idea that, well, has God really said, uh, has God really said you can eat from every tree of the garden? It's a set-up question because then Eve has to respond by saying, well, no, he hasn't actually. There is one tree we're not allowed to eat from. So it's a very intentionally manipulative question. He's trying to steer her in a very particular direction that begins to get her mind to think of God as someone who is restrictive. So Eve has to respond by saying, well, no, actually, there's, there's one tree that we're not allowed to eat from. And she says that in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the, first, uh, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. There's a very important detail in there that shows us that Eve had already begun to be tricked by what uh, Satan was saying. Eve says that God told them, you shall not eat of it, and you shall not touch it. Now when we go to Genesis chapter 2, where God gives the warning to Adam saying, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil... He never says, do not touch the fruit. God merely says, do not eat from the tree. And yet here we see the serpent is trying to manipulate Eve. He's saying, look, isn't God a bit restrictive? He's limiting what you can really choose to do. And Eve has almost implicitly, uh, subconsciously agreed to this idea because now she's even adding on extra rules to what God said. She goes, yeah, you know what? God said we can't touch it. Uh, We can't eat it, and we can't even touch it. And that was a rule that God had never actually given to Adam and Eve. So we're beginning to see Eve is slowly falling into this trap. She's falling into the deception and lies that Satan has. Verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Uh, We've translated it, You will not surely die. If you were to literally translated like word for word from the Hebrew, it would be dying, you will not die. Now that doesn't really uh, make much sense in our English, which is why we translate it to something that is more palatable to us. But in the Hebrew, the, if you wanted to really overemphasize something, if you wanted to say something as strongly as possible, you would repeat it twice. And so the serpent is going, no, dying, you will not die. He's trying to say as emphatically as possible, Don't listen to what God tells you. Isn't that what he's saying? Don't listen to what God said. You will not die. And to me, that is the biggest, most uh, terrible lie in the entire Bible. Because after this, the only thing that we see produced is death. That's such a, a terrible lie that Satan told to humanity. In verse 5, the serpent continues. He says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what's the implication in that verse? God's trying to hold you back. He doesn't want you to eat from the tree, because then you'll become like him. So, he makes this appear, as this forbidden fruit to appear, as though God's doing it 
to hold back humanity. And again, this is a terrible lie for two reasons. The first is, if God really wanted to restrict humanity from having knowledge, wouldn't he just not plant the tree in the garden? It doesn't really make much sense, right? If God is, really wants to restrict humanity, he just wouldn't put the tree in there. But secondly, he says, if you eat from it, you will be like God. What's so terrible about that is, we read in Genesis 1, that God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Humanity was already like God. And here comes Satan saying, don't you want to be like God? And the product he's selling is a, a cheap counterfeit. It's a cheap knockoff of what God had already given to humanity all the way in Genesis 1. And so we see tragically in verse 6 what is the end result of this lie. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Eve looks at the fruit and she sees that it's desirable. It's appetizing. She doubts God, and she chooses to trust the serpent. Even more than that, she decides that her knowledge is greater than that of God. In a way, she and, she and Adam are like that adolescent who goes, you know what, even though I've been told not to do this by someone who knows way more than me, I think I can figure this out for myself. You know, I don't think I'll actually be hurt by doing this action. And so we have this act of rebellion through, of, on the part of humanity against the natural boundaries that God had created for their benefit and for their well-being. So what did eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil actually give us? Well, it gave us broken human relationships, a loss of identity, a loss of innocence, a loss of home in Eden, gave humanity guilt and shame. It gave us the ability to do unspeakable evils against one another, led to pain and suffering, ultimately death and the judgment of the second death. It separated humanity from God, created an unhealthy fear of God. It put us in enmity between us and the devil. We see a curse on the earth, natural disasters, disease. Or in summary, you could say, ugliness, chaos, vulnerability, and death. Where once we had seen beauty, order, safety, and life through the boundaries that God had created, Satan now comes in, he encourages humanity to rebel against these boundaries, and as a result, the only thing that we have been given is ugliness, chaos, vulnerability, and death. And what's sad is that in this world of, uh, of sin, there usually are two categories of people who suffer the most. And we're going to continue to explore this. Because in a sinful world, it, a lot of the time things become survival of the fittest, might makes right, it's just every man for himself. And unfortunately, we've seen throughout history that in societies that do not follow the law of God, it is usually women and children who suffer the most. And you'll see in the prophetic literature this emphasis of in particular helping the widows and the orphans. Women and children usually suffer the most. It's usually because men are physically stronger, they typically have more aggressive personalities, and usually they're in positions of power and influence enough to back up that strength and aggressiveness. And so we see that throughout history, women and children have suffered in a sinful world. They've been exploited 
by evil men and that these two categories of people are the ones who unfortunately suffer the most in a sinful world of ugliness, chaos, vulnerability and death. But Satan, of course, didn't stop there. It wasn't enough just to create a sinful world. He wanted to continue to break down these barriers. So what are some ways that he has done this? Well, he's broken down, for example, the barrier between beasts of the earth or animals and humanity. We have through uh, the process or the theory of Darwinian evolution the idea that, well, humans are merely a byproduct of um, evolution, of natural processes, and that Humans just came from, they are descendants of animals. And so when we uh, adhere to that idea, what we essentially say is that humans are no different from the animals. That there is no distinction between the two categories. And because now humans are no longer made in the image of God, we've seen great evils perpetuated by this idea that humans are no greater than animals. They're just like cattle. We've also seen uh, a breaking down of the division between humanity and God. Our society, increasingly so, is in rejection to the even existence of God. And when we eliminate God and he eliminate him as our moral lawgiver, well, someone else has to become the new moral lawgiver, right? Someone has to make the new rules. And so humanity steps in and they decide that, hey, we can be like God. We can know what good and evil is. We can determine right from wrong by ourselves. In a world where there is no objective meaning, purpose, morality, or even reality, humans subjectively get to choose what they decide is right and wrong. And the book of Judges tells us that this mentality is uh, when each man does what is right in his own eyes. And if you look at the book of Judges, I think you'll just find a lot of ugliness, chaos, vulnerability, and death. And of course we see that Satan has tricked people uh, when it comes to the seventh-day Sabbath. Well, all of the days are just the same. There is no distinction between the Sabbath day and every other day. You can keep any day you like. There's no reason to keep the seventh day holy. Yet another uh, deception that Satan has created to break down these natural, beautiful boundaries that God has created for us. So, where do we see this continual rebellion against God's boundaries in our world today. Well, we see it in many of these things that we've already spoken of, but I want to focus in particular on just one aspect, and this will just be the remainder of our discussion this morning, and that is the boundaries that Satan has torn down between man and woman, marriage and other relationships, um, and to an extent humanity and God as well. Because these ideas are foundational to human existence. These are just the basic relationships that we have in society. We're, we're built up by families, by marriage, and by how we interact with other people. And so it's no wonder that Satan has done everything in his power to try and undermine these boundaries that God has created. This morning, uh, we're going to look at uh, a lot of terms that you may not uh, you might have come across and wondered, well, where did we even get that idea from? And I hope that as we kind of go through it, we're going to go through a brief history of how we've seen the undermining of these boundaries, and hopefully you'll find it illuminating. The first example in history that we see of this 
direct rebellion against uh, man and woman and marriage and other relationships comes from two philosophers by the names of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. You might know them as the writers of the Communist Manifesto and creators of the ideology of Marxism. And the primary idea of Marxism is that Western society is inherently oppressive and inherently evil. And in particular, capitalist society is evil. And according to Marx and Engels, capitalism was sustained by one primary tool, Christianity. To them, they believed that Christian values undergirded all of society. But they also viewed that society is inherently evil. So to them, in order for people to be free and liberated, we had, uh, one had to completely undermine the values of Western or Christian society and replace them with what he wanted, a new communist government. In particular, he despised the value of the nuclear family. He believed it oppressed women who stayed home to take care of children, denying them the privilege to enter into the workforce. He also believed that the family unit contributed to capitalism, and therefore Christianity and the nuclear family had to be destroyed. The first example we see of this theory being practiced is under uh, a lady called Alexandra Kollontai. Alexander Kollontai was uh, a, the leader of the women's movement in the Russian Revolution of 1917, which was a communist overthrow of the Russian monarchy and was built upon the ideas of Marx and Engels. Kollontai believed that she helped legalize no-fault divorce, legalized homosexuality and abortion. Women were compelled to work in production while the state education systems cared for their children, supposedly liberating them from working for their family, but were then compelled to work for a business in a factory. Kollontai also promoted free love and encouraged teenagers to engage in sexual activity. And we see that this was repeated wherever a communist regime overtook, uh, took power, particularly in the 20th century, because it was built on the idea that Western Christian society was evil, all Christian values were overthrown and were replaced with this, these ideas counter to the boundaries that God had created. Then we come to a different... Um, a different area, that of psychoanalysis. And many of you will be familiar with who is labelled as the father of psychoanalysis. He is the, the famous face of um, this area, a man by the name of Sigmund, uh, Sigmund Freud. And his theories continued uh, what can only be described as the continued sexualization of Western culture. Um, I should also say, I forgot to mention at the beginning uh, of this history segment that we're going through, as we progressively go through this, the things that we come across will become increasingly uh, disturbing, needlessly dis uh, to say. So it was Freud's belief that infants and children were sexually active and expressed what he called polymorphous perversity, which meant that infants would seek out sexual gratification outside of socially acceptable boundaries. Thus, he determined that heterosexuality was only natural because people were socialized into it, and that naturally everyone was born to be what he described as sexually perverse. And he said that only through the expression of this perversity could someone be truly liberated and free. Very interesting choice of language. You're being held back. 
These boundaries are restrictive. If you want to be free, you have to break down the boundaries. One of the great students of Freud was a man by the name of Wilhelm Reich. Now, his personal life was completely deplorable. Before the age of 18, he had been promiscuous with his family maid. He visited prostitutes, and he suffered from Oedipus complex. During his life, he had four wives, all of which he compelled to have abortions. During each marriage, he also had numerous affairs. His promiscuity led to the death of one of his partners and the suicide of a nurse and his own mother. He enabled sexual abuse of children at his infant research center, which he used to justify the theories of Sigmund Freud. His life's work was dedicated to normalizing homosexuality, abortion, and incest. He was also the first psychoanalyst to combine Freud's ideas with that of Marxism, which we discussed earlier. And this paved the way for future studies on human sexuality. Herbert Marcuse is another man who did the exact same thing as Reich, trying to find a way to bring together the ideas of Sigmund Freud, this idea that everyone is naturally perverse, and the ideas of Marxism. And he believed, again, that to escape capitalist morality, everyone had to engage in polymorphous perversity. Only then would humans truly be free and liberated. And so you begin to see through history, these are the origins of these ideas that we come to uh, find today. In particular, the last two people we're going to look at. In particular, we have a man by the name of Alfred Kinsey. And he brings all of these ideas that the people before him have come up with. Freud, Wilhelm Reich, um, Marx, Alexandra Kollontai. He brings all of these ideas together and he imports them to America. Now, before this, it had been primarily in communist countries or in Germany. But now we begin to see the ideas brought into the country of America. He developed what he called the Kinsey Scale, which measures uh, how heterosexual or homosexual an individual is. And this gives us the idea of sexuality being on a spectrum. And you may have uh, come across that idea many times um, in modern discussions today. However, Kinsey's research to justify his claims were morally reprehensible. Kinsey's data pool was oversaturated by prisoners and pedophiles who did not represent the normal human population. He also interviewed a pedophile who he claimed in his report were actually nine separate men to justify his claims. He also conducted sexually abusive experiments on infants to justify his claim. And yet it is from this man and his research that we get the idea that somehow sexuality is fluid and on a spectrum instead of being in boundaries. The final person that we'll uh, look at is a man by the name of John Money. He created the terms sexual orientation to replace the idea of sexual preference to imply that you couldn't ever change how you ever felt. He's also the one to term the idea of gender identity, the idea that who you biologically are is very different from how you think and you feel. Now, to validate this claim, Money did an experiment on a set of twins by the names of Bruce and Brian Raymer. Bruce was raised from birth to be a girl, while his brother Brian was allowed to grow up as a boy. Bruce had surgery done to make him biologically a girl, and he was given a new name, Brenda. He was given hormone treatment, and he was 
forced to meet with the experimenter John Money several times throughout his life. Now, Bruce was not told that this was actually an experiment. He was not told that he was actually a boy. And he resisted against all pressure for him to behave like a young girl. For his entire childhood, he was depressed. And at age 13, he threatened suicide if his parents ever took him to see John Money again. Bruce was finally told that his entire life had been a cruel experiment. And at age 15, he decided to live his life as a boy and assume a new name, David. Despite the poor mental condition of Raymer and the trauma he suffered, Money published his research in academic journals as a complete success. He said that it proved that gender was not biological, but it was learned, and that people could, uh, people could express themselves however they wanted, and that sex reassignment surgery was in fact positive. For patients. In 2002, David's brother Brian was found dead from an overdose of antidepressants. Two years later, David Reamer, the boy raised as Brenda Reamer, killed himself in May of 2004. It was not until 40 years later that Money's research was found to be not only unsuccessful, but immoral and unethical. But by then, the idea that your sex and your gender are two different things and that sex reassignment surgery was safe had already become mainstream and accepted. Gender theorist Judith Butler was the successor to these ideas and to this day she's still a prominent thinker on this topic. In a book that she published called Undoing Gender, she talks about how gender is just a construct, that there's nothing innate or natural about it, that these boundaries do not in fact exist and that we can erase them because they are completely made up. The ideas of man and woman being separate is just a figment of our imagination. And the book focuses on the case of this boy, David Reamer. Now, you might remember that David Reamer sadly killed himself in 2004. This book that Judith Butler published, she also published in 2004, just three months after... David Reamer's suicide. And yet somehow the book was still accepted as valid and as, uh, as decent research to prove this theory when the very person the experiment had been run on had died just three months prior to the publication of this book. Now we see all of these ideas come to fruition, particularly in the 1960s. And it has led to the deconstruction of marriage of the nuclear family, of gender and sex, of natural roles for men and women. It led to the legalization and acceptance of homosexuality, premarital sex, pornography, public nudity, transgenderism, no-fault divorce, and abortion. And if I were to summarize what all of those things are, I would simply say that that is ugliness, chaos, vulnerability, and death. We have seen a, a deliberate attack on these natural boundaries that God created for humanity between man and woman, between the idea that marriage is something to be exclusively between two people, and in particular, a man and a woman. And I find it so really disgusting that these ideas have become so prominent and so popular in our culture today when the methods that these ideas were founded on were completely immoral, or that the ideas 
uh, that these people came from were evil, despicable people. We need only look at the people who originated this idea, Marx and Freud, and the communist regimes that pushed these ideas to see that these people were antagonistic towards Christianity, that they hated the very values that God stood for, and that their life's goal was to undermine these boundaries. People like Freud and Reich, people who believed that humans are naturally perverse and that we should engage in these terrible things. People like Kinsey and John Money, who used terrible, immoral, and unethical research to justify their claims. All of these contemporary ideas that we have are built upon immoral research, upon evil ideas, and really immoral people. And so, where are we today? Where has all of this eventually led us to? Well, in America, the fertility rate is actually so much so that Americans are not producing enough babies to even replace themselves. In the year of 2019, abortion was the leading cause of death, ending 42 million lives. That's about, that's, uh, in Australia, I think we have 27, 28 million people in our population. So over the, more than the Australian population was killed last year. If you go onto Facebook, you'll find that there is a list of 58 different genders that you can pick from. There isn't just man and woman. You'll find that there are over 58. Because from the research of Kinsey, we have the idea that gender is just a construct, that there is nothing actually real about it. Uh, teenagers are still encouraged to transition to their gender, just like David Rema did. And unfortunately, uh, people who do not feel as though they are in the right gender, people who transition to another gender, are more likely to attempt suicide than anyone else. In fact, the only uh, population that is comparable to this rate were prisoners or people in the uh, concentration camps of Auschwitz. That is the level of uh, attempts at suicide that these people go through. And it's deeply saddening. We also, uh, as I said, this idea that women and children suffer most in a godless society. We see that uh, children are increasingly exposed to uh, sexual activity at an increasingly young age, and it's completely immoral to expose them to these things. A very popular thing that you may have heard of is what's called drag queen story time where performers dressed in highly sexualized uh, costumes come and read stories to children in schools and public libraries. Just this week, the 17th of, uh, sorry, uh, 17th of June, so just in the past month, a mother who criticized this has now been, uh, she's now facing legal action, accused of, accused of discrimination, for saying that she did not agree that children should not be exposed to uh, highly sexualized ideas at such a young age. And of course, unfortunately, if you disagree with any of these ideas, then you should be ready to receive lots of hatred, lots of negativity, be called a bigot, be called uh, a hater, someone who doesn't love other people, and uh, yeah, be ostracized, essentially. This has become, in a way, almost a, a new religious system in which 
There's a very strict dogma, there's a very strict doctrine to adhere to, and any deviation from that is considered to be sinful. And really, this is just the tip, pardon me, the tip of the iceberg that we see. We've gone through a very quick process of the history of where uh, it's led up to today, and just a very quick overview of where we see the breaking down of these boundaries today. So, in summary, what do we see in this particular, just in two areas, just in breaking the boundary of man and woman and of marriage and other relationships, what have we seen? The only result that I can see is the same result we get every time we rebel against God's boundaries. Ugliness, chaos, vulnerability, and death. And so, upon reading all of this and listening and hearing to all of this, it's very easy to become very discouraged because the things that are are going on in the world today and the things that have led up to it are evil. And hearing and listening to evil things is disheartening at times. It can discourage us. But I think that we, we can have hope. Our goal should be to restore beauty, order, safety, and life. And God doesn't leave us in a position where we're unable to do that. God doesn't just leave us in this sinful world and leave us to our own devices. He has given us something which can restore these natural, beautiful divisions and boundaries. The only solution to this is the gospel. And here is the major reason why. Many people will propose many different ideas. And in fact, it's very true that we should be speaking on uh, political issues, that we should be trying to strive for good laws and for good policies. But ultimately, laws and policies can be changed, and it doesn't ultimately change the thoughts, the hearts of people. The gospel alone is the only thing that has the power to transform people for eternity. It is the only thing that gives people a transformed heart, and mind and makes that change to be eternal. If we look at again that um, uh, I've got in front of me this chart of the things that were broken down as a result of the fall, and I listed them off earlier, the gospel solves every single one of these problems. The gospel is able to fix broken human relationships because it works on that sinful nature and makes us more selfless and loving. It restores our identity by affirming to us that we have been bought and purchased at a price and we, that we are the sons and daughters of God. It brings back our innocence. We can now be declared as illegally innocent before the law of God because Christ represents us. The gospel restores us to our home in Eden. One day, this earth will be recreated and we will be able to be in the Garden of Eden. The gospel gets rid of our guilt and our shame. We no longer need to feel these knowing that our sin has been taken away. Pain and suffering can be reduced as well as human evil when the human heart is transformed and now wants to follow the law of God as opposed to following the law of man. Death and the judgment of the second death are completely eradicated. Paul writes, death, where is your sting? The gospel and the resurrection of Jesus eliminates these. The separation between God and man is brought back together. We no longer have to have an unhealthy fear of God, but can be in an intimate relationship with Him. 
The enmity between humans and the devil will one day finally come to an end at the end of the great controversy. The curse on the earth will be eliminated. God will recreate a new heavens and a new earth. Natural disasters and disease will be gotten rid of. All because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. This one event is able to span through all time and fix all problems to the problem of sin that humans created by themselves, but God decided to step in and intervene and work on behalf of human beings. When we look at how the gospel solves all of the problems of sin, we can see that everything that it does is restores beauty, order, safety, and life. And that is both physically and temporally now, here today, as well as for eternity and for all time. We are fighting a spiritual battle. And we have the spiritual solution to the problem that we face, which is the gospel. The gospel alone can transform the heart and make permanent, eternal change to people in society. If we truly want to see our culture around us change positively. If we want to see that, uh, if we want to see these beautiful boundaries brought together, it's not merely enough to expose the evil behind them. This morning we've done that. We've looked at the, the evil origins and roots of these ideas, but it's not enough to just leave it there and say, well, these ideas are bad. We then need to point people towards the solution. And as we said, the gospel alone is able to make that permanent, eternal change to people on an individual basis, which will eventually spread and grow and transform an entire culture. The gospel alone is able to stave away the rebellion against God's boundaries. And so my my plea to you this morning, let us make use of this great solution Let us go into the world. Let us start in our local communities and not just expose evil for what it is, but also bring the great solution of the gospel and ultimately restore beauty, order, safety, and life to our world.